G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. And we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast. We don't ask for much in return, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great and appreciate a few minutes of your time to be able to, to do that. Joining Brian and myself in our virtual studio um, again, uh, we are delighted to have uh, Dr. Nicola Menzies Gao, who is one of our readers in equine medicine here at the RBC, and we thought we'd uh, have a, a brief discussion, if that's if that's possible, on on laminitis. So, thank you, Nicola, for joining us. Thank you very much. So, I, I suppose maybe the, the first question, and bear in mind, I'm, I'm more of a small animal vet, but well, actually just a small animal vet, um, would be um, so so. If you were asked to define a laminitis, what, what are we actually sort of talking about? So um, we're talking about a disease of the horse's feet um, and it can affect um, all of the feet or just one foot or any combination of feet. And it's been recently decided that there are three different types of laminitis um, that occur under very different um, circumstances. Um, so the first is what's called sepsis associated laminitis. So that's when the horse is sick for any reason. So usually um, a severe gastrointestinal disease. Um, so it might be that they've got a bad colitis or diarrhea. They've got um, a colic, so abdominal pain that has got um, an underlying um, surgical lesion. So they need surgery to fix the underlying problem. And then because then the animal is sick after that, um, they're at an increased risk of getting laminitis. So that's one type of laminitis called sepsis associated laminitis. Um, the second category is called supporting limb laminitis, um, in which they have uh, quite a severe lameness in one leg. So they might have a fracture and then they've ended up with having the fracture fixed and a cast on it, but they can't bear much weight on that leg. So then it's the other leg um, that they're bearing all the weight on that then is at risk of getting laminitis and um, because they're used to being able to share the weight between all of their legs and, and sort of walk and move around to help with the blood supply to their feet. Um, and if they can't do that, um, then that leg is at risk of getting laminitis. Um, and then the third category, which is the most common category and accounts for 90% of cases, is called endocrinopathic laminitis, which is when the horse has an underlying endocrine or hormone disease um, and the laminitis that they get is associated with that. And the two common endocrine disorders that the horse gets, uh, the first one is called PPID or pituitary pars intermedia dysfunction that's also been known by lots of different names in the past. Uh, the one that owners most commonly know as equine Cushing's disease, where, where they've got a problem with the pituitary gland at the base of their brain and it overproduces hormones. And then it's these hormones that then result in the laminitis in the feet. And the second endocrine disease that horses get is called equine metabolic syndrome, where they have a problem with the hormone insulin and it's having the high insulin concentrations in their circulation that then affect the feet and give them the laminitis. So it happens in, in a very different array of circumstances that you end up with the same um, lameness in the feet. And, and you said so it's recently been um, kind of kind of agreed that those are the three sort of categories. And so does that mean that the pathophysiology underpinning them are, are sort of similar in the end result? And, and are there still sort of I don't know, not disagreements, but um, um, but yeah, maybe people have a different ideas about 
that sort of classification? Yeah, so we used to think that laminitis was just one disease and we used to try and fit all those different scenarios into one single pathway, thinking that there's one thing that sets it off and one cascade of events that happens in the body to give you the laminitis. And then we realised that that just doesn't work because the, the, the disease processes that seem to be setting it off are very different and trying to sort of squash them into the same pigeonhole just wasn't working. And then also we got some more information relating to the cascades of events that occur. And in those three different categories, they are very different. So in the sepsis-associated laminitis, so the sick horse laminitis, it seems to be that the whole body of the horse becomes inflamed. There's a, there's a sort of inflammatory cascade that occurs that's set off by the initial gastrointestinal or whatever it is condition that then um, it sets off what we call SIRS, so a systemic inflammatory response uh, syndrome. And it seems to be that the horse's feet, so the, the lamellae that are within the horse's feet are, are the um, area of the body that's most particularly affected. But you can look elsewhere in the horse, you can look in its liver and its skin, etc. And there's er- evidence of inflammation going on. So that's that's one category of laminitis. In the supporting limb laminitis, it appears to be that because the horse isn't walking around um, and the walking um, is part of the mechanism by which the horse pumps the blood around its uh, feet and its legs, when that's not happening, then you get what's called ischemia and reperfusion. So uh, a lack of blood uh, to the lamellae in the feet um, occurs. And then because you've got a lack of blood supply, you've got a lack of oxygen and a lack of nutrient provision. And that's what causes the laminitis. And then the final category, which is the endocrinopathic laminitis, seems to be all related to the hormone insulin. And both the uh, PPID and the equine metabolic syndrome, the main feature that is associated with them getting laminitis is what we call insulin dysregulation. So their body isn't um, reacting and, uh, to the hormone insulin as it should. Uh, so they have much higher insulin concentrations in their blood than an average horse. And it seems to be that the insulin uh, then uh, triggers the laminitis in the feet. But the exact mechanism by which the the insulin causes the laminitis is still one of those areas uh, that's the focus of quite a lot of research uh, at the moment and um, quite an area of quite a lot of discussion within the research community. And so when you're dividing up these, uh, um, the, the different sort of underlying causes of laminitis, so is it fair to say that I suppose the, um, the, the sepsis and supporting lim- laminitis would be um, kind of c- consistent with the, uh, the, the frequency that one might, might see those? And, and yet, would you say the same thing with, with insulin dysregulation? Is that, is that, is that more common more recently or has that always is that sort of a similar number that's been going on in the background i I think the numbers are the same um over the last however long that you look back but i think we just haven't realized that they are different categories of disease so um supporting limb laminitis is the least common um it's something like 0.02 percent of the population gets supporting limb laminitis of the equine population Whereas um, the figure for endocrinopathic laminitis is about sort of uh, four or five percent of the general equine population. Uh, So that's why it accounts for 90 percent of the cases. Uh, And it's because the category of animal that has these underlying endocrine disease is essentially the general horse and pony population. Uh, So because um, the 
uh, if you look, for example, pituitary pars intermediate dysfunction is a disease of aging and the average age of the affected animal is about sort of 18, 19. And there are an awful lot of teenage and older ponies walking around in, in the UK. Um, and um, they're the, and about somewhere between a quarter and a half of animals with PPID um, end up getting laminitis as one of their clinical signs. So it's because the underlying diseases that cause endocrinopathic laminitis are far more common within the equine population. That's what that's what results in that that form of laminitis being the most common, if that makes sense. And is that across the the board, Nicholas? So, so if you're in North America or, or South America or Australasia, would would that be a, a similar sort of percentage wise that you would see of, of laminitis? It's certainly um, the true in the Western world uh, because the particularly the equine metabolic syndrome. It's a disease um, that's associated not predominantly, but it it has genetic component, so it's particular breeds. Um, so it's the things like um, the Welsh breeds, the Arabs, the, um, the Morgans and their various American breeds, Tennessee walking horses, that kind of thing. And because those breeds are the ones that are popular within the Western world, um, they are more common. And also it's made um, worse. Uh, one of the triggering factors is obesity. So because, again, a lot of the horses and ponies in the Western world are overweight because they eat too much and don't do much exercise, um, then, and then again, um, it means uh, that they then develop this sort of metabolic and hormone related issues. So it, it tends to be mostly um, a disease um, of the Western world rather than developing countries where horses are um are sort of truly working animals. And as far as the, the, the research or people looking into things um, regarding sort of laminitis, it, it tends to be the focus on endocrine because it's more common and because I suppose the, that you can maybe alter some of the triggers. Would that be fair? Yeah. So, I mean, the other two forms, so the sepsis associated and the um, supporting them laminitis, you can pretty much predict that an animal's likely to get it by the fact that you know that they've got a lameness in the other foot therefore you can do the various management things to try and prevent it occurring um, in that at-risk leg or if you've got a horse that's just had um, colic surgery um, so for instance it's had a strangulating lipoma that strangled a, a bit of its small intestine and you've had to take it out and join the bits back together again then you know that that's animals at risk of getting sepsis associated laminitis um, and you can again um, put in place various sort of preventative treatments Whereas the endocrinopathic laminitis just occurs when the animal is literally walking around out in the field. And you just by looking at it, you don't know that the animal's at risk of getting it. And you don't know that it's at risk of, even if you know it's at risk because you've identified it has an underlying endocrine disorder, you don't know that it's going to get it today, tomorrow, next month, next year, etc. Um, so that's a lot harder to predict when they're going to get the disease. And, and so with that sort of um, uh, harder to predict, so are, are there, are, I suppose, are there, are there tests you can do to try to work out whether um, a, a horse or pony might be more susceptible to develop this? Yeah, so the, the thing to do is if you have an animal that you suspect might fall into those categories of having either the equine metabolic syndrome or the PPID um, as underlying endocrine disease, then there are tests you can do for both of those diseases. Um, so for the equine metabolic syndrome, you do tests for the main underlying hormone issues, which we call insulin dysregulation. And that involves 
measuring the insulin concentration in their blood as they are. And then we can do dynamic tests where, for example, we might give them um, some carbohydrates, so some sugar, and then measure the insulin in their blood once they've eaten the sugar to see what the insulin response is to that. So there are several tests that you can do. There are three different manifestations of insulin dysregulation in the horse, and there are different tests to pick up each of those three manifestations. And then if you're, you think the horse might be might have the PPID, so the pituitary pars intermediate dysfunction, then that you measure different hormones in their blood. So um, the one that you would measure the basal circulating concentrations of is called ACTH, so adrenocorticotrophic hormone. And then you can also do a dynamic test where we do what's called a TRH stimulation test. So you inject the horse with thyrotropin releasing hormone and the TRH is a physiologic release factor for the equine pituitary. So it makes the equine pituitary release lots of hormones and you measure the ACTH response to the TRH. So there are some tests that you can do um, to, to diagnose the underlying endocrine disorders. And then once you know they've got the underlying endocrine disorders, you know they're at risk of getting the laminitis. And then the best thing to do is um, to put in place both the treatment options for the endocrine disorders and also there are various sort of management changes that you can do to on top of the treating the underlying endocrine um, disease to reduce the risk of that individual animal getting um, laminitis at any given time as well. So, so could I, I just ask firstly I suppose like what, what what are these sort of treatments for the underlying sort of endocrinopathies that you that you have? So the treatment for PPID is more straightforward. Uh, the disease itself involves the pituitary gland has lost the normal inhibition from the hypothalamus. And the inhibition takes the form of um, dopaminergic neurons that come from the hypothalamus to the pituitary and act as the off switch for that area of the pituitary. So if you lose that off switch, that's why that area of the pituitary overproduces its hormone. So we use dopamine agonists to replace that lost um, off switch. Um, and there's a licensed product. Uh, the active ingredient is called pergolide um, and the trade name is Percent. So it's licensed for the treatment of PPID in horses and ponies in the UK. So that's where we would start um, with that. If, if the pony doesn't respond to the pergolide, um, then you can add in alternative treatments as well. But that's certainly the, the starting place for, for therapy. So that's that's easier. Whereas the treatment for equine metabolic syndrome, you have to do, uh, essentially it's management changes to try and improve the um, pony's insulin dysregulation status. And that involves diet and exercise. So if the animal is quite, quite often animals with equine metabolic syndrome are overweight. So you have to put them, literally put them on a diet to reduce their um, weight and their obesity levels. And that involves feeding them a, low glycemic index diet so a low sugar diet uh, that's based on forage uh, so you want to feed them hay rather than all the concentrates and um, some of them you have to take off the grass because uh, the grass you intake is quite difficult to control and also the same as us if you want to lose weight as well as going on a diet you have to exercise more so again we recommend that these animals are exercised more because exercising more both improves your insulin sensitivity and helps reduce your weight because you burn up more calories. There are a couple of drugs that 
I was going to say there are a couple of drugs you can use in the short term to try and improve their insulin sensitivity, but they're only a short term measure. Essentially, it's diet and exercise to improve um, things for these ponies. And, and, sorry, sorry to interrupt before, but could it, um, as far as the exercise, if they if they do have like active laminitis, is that quite difficult to get them to to exercise if they're uncomfortable? Yeah, you have to wait until the laminitis is resolved. So you you treat the laminitis per se first, uh, and then you do treatments to try and uh, improve the insulin sensitivity if they have EMS or you initiate the treatment for the PPRD um, as well. So so the laminitis itself, the episode requires one set of treatments and then the underlying endocrine disorder requires a separate separate set of treatments. And I know Nicola work in a hospital, but are a lot of these tests um, able to be performed um, in, in the field? as it were yeah all the tests can be performed in the field so if for example the PPRD if you're just measuring basal ACTH samples it's literally a single blood sample from the horse you have to then process it relatively quickly you can't leave it sat in your car getting hot you have to bring it back um, and uh, chill it within three hours of taking out the pony and then send it chilled to the lab but that that's fine and equally a TRH stimulation test you take a single blood sample um, you inject in the TRH and 10 minutes later, you take a second blood sample. So it's perfectly feasible to wait around on the yard for 10 minutes. Um, there's lots of other things you can probably do while you're there um, to do that test. And then if you're trying to make a diagnosis of the equine metabolic syndrome and uh, you're doing the test for insulin dysregulation, it's easy to measure the basal insulin concentrations or do what we call the oral sugar test, where you take a baseline uh, blood uh, you give them the sugar and then you uh, take a second blood test. Um, that one you take about 60 minutes later. So that needs to be timed slightly better so that you don't waste your time while you're there. Um, the third uh, manifestation of insulin dysregulation that involves uh, tissue insulin resistance, that's a slightly more complicated test with quite a lot more blood type. Um, samples required so you may well want to bring the the horse into a hospital situation to do that one but certainly the first two tests are quite perfectly easy to do in the field and and are there things that you would suggest so i suppose with that with that sort of diet and exercise would would, do do you think that a lot of people might suggest that even without um like doing uh doing any necessarily any tests in the in the first part or do you think like it's important to to know um, whether you have any insulin dysregulation in them before you start doing that? I think it's probably important, more important for the owner uh, because they like to know why their horse got laminitis. So if you can run some blood tests and tell them, well, it's got this underlying endocrine disorder that we need to treat, then they um, can see the point of doing the diet and exercise much more readily whereas if you tell them oh you just need to feed it less and exercise it more then they're a bit like well why do i need to do that because it's quite hard for people i mean you know it's, it's hard for us if we if if you get told eat less exercise more your motivation for doing that is is very limited um so it's the same for the owners whereas if if they can see that the horse has an underlying medical condition um and in order to treat this medical condition this is the treatment that the horse needs so that the diet and the exercise are a treatment plan um then um then they sort of get on board more readily i mean it is it's difficult we all we all know it doesn't matter whether you're a, a, a small animal vet, a, a doctor, a, a horse vet. Um, weight loss is a, a very 
difficult thing to achieve. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and I suppose, and, and you mentioned before, so certain um, like breeds of of, um, of pony are, are more prone to that. So does that make it, I suppose, that like easier that people are kind of more aware that this condition sort of happens in that breed, so kind of have a bit better understanding, or is it, or do you find it that a lot of owners? Um, aren't aware i suppose the same like if i was gonna um think about um uh, like the brachycephalic breeds that, that, that we deal with that sometimes people are a bit surprised that they have breathing issues or skin for pyoderma etc cetera, etc cetera. it's very variable um there's been quite a lot of um owner um sort of awareness uh, publications uh, recently um particularly because the drug company that have presend and have it licensed um put an awful lot of money into sort of campaigns for it so I think um, owner awareness over the last sort of five years has improved um, but it doesn't mean that they all know about it and and is there any things that you can do to so you, so you mentioned before when we talk about like the um uh, sorry so sepsis induced laminitis and supporting limb laminitis are there so what can you do to sort of like pre- prevent those things from potentially developing or, or are there treatments that that you can do to prevent that or is it just more of awareness that that could happen and treat that accordingly when it does happen so for for the sepsis-associated laminitis, um, the the newest treatment, well, the newest prevention and also treatment that we've got is using ice. So it has a technical name of digital cryotherapy. Essentially, it involves um, uh, the horses are very tolerant. We in the hospital here we use um, fluid bags, so five liter fluid bags that have had their fluids used um, and then we cut off the top and we fill that with a sort of what we call a slurry so a mixture of ice and water um, put the horse's foot in that and literally then use duct tape to tape it around their feet um, because the ice the cooling of the ice um, slows down the inflammatory processes that are going on in the feet because you know if, if it gets cold then enzymes don't work so efficiently and inflammation um, doesn't occur um, so readily um, and there have been studies that have shown quite effectively that uh, digital cryotherapy has has a, a preventative and a treatment role to play in sepsis-associated laminitis, which is good. Um, and then the other thing that we do in both the sepsis-associated and the supporting limb laminitis is that we put uh, foot supports on, on the at-risk uh, limbs, um, because if, if we support the the back or the caudal two-thirds of the foot, um, then that helps to ke- keep the pedal bone in place in st- inside the hoof, because that's the consequence of the laminitis, is when the laminae become um, inflamed or upset, or depending on the scenario, um, is that they then don't hold the pedal bone in place within the hoof capsule, um, and then either it can sink or it can rotate under the pull of the flexor tendons up the back of, of the um, the leg. So if you um, add a support to the back of the foot, then that helps keep the pedal bone in place. And are there particular therapies as well with actually sort of treating acute laminitis and in, in, in maybe a, a opinions about uh, a pain management with these ponies and horses? So uh, the mainstay of the pain, pain management in these animals is the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs simply because um, it takes weeks to months for the laminitis to resolve regardless of the type that they get. So we need some kind of um, pain medication that the owner can give at home, so an oral medication, um, and that isn't too expensive so that it can be given for that length of time. Um, so the, as I say, the mainstay is the non anti-inflammatories and the one that horses most commonly get is phenylbutazone or bute as it gets, gets called. 
But sometimes that's not enough. And then we have to add in other things. Uh, the newest um, adjunct that's quite cheap and easy to give is paracetamol. That uh, there's evidence that uh, we've got some um, pharmacokinetics so that we know what the dose should be. And uh, also there's some evidence that it does provide additional analgesia. And then if, if that's not enough, uh, then we can look to the opiates. But again, they're more than the horse has to be in the hospital situation because they're controlled drugs and you have to inject them uh, and, and they don't last that long. They only last a few hours, so they, they need to be given multiple times. Uh, a day and also then things uh, like uh, gabapentin uh, so um, drugs that are uh, affecting um, the, the neurotransmission um, we can use fentanyl patches so we have a whole array of, of drugs that, that we can use and we can use in combination if needed um, but I would say the majority of animals you can um, get their pain under control using just non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs um, with them staying at home, fortunately. That's um, that's great. That's great. Thank you. And, and I suppose so maybe a couple of questions about the, the, the future direction of, of where of where things are going. So, so, you, so I suppose one would be like, what are, what are you um, looking at as regards to understanding um, laminitis? And then I suppose are, are, are things changing with, with therapies as, as well? So as far as my personal research goes um, into trying to understand laminitis better, the, the bit that we're focusing on is how the high insulin concentrations in the blood then cause the laminitis itself within the feet. Um, and I've got a PhD student that's working on the role of a hormone called adiponectin, which is a fat derived hormone. Uh, and what happens in equine metabolic syndrome is the fat tissue produces less of this adiponectin hormone. And adiponectin's job is to sensitize to insulin and be anti-inflammatory. And there's some crosstalk between the adiponectin and the insulin receptors, etc. So um, she's working on the role of um, adiponectin in um, endocrinopathic laminitis. So that will help us then understand the sort of the chain of events that's occurring in the feet that then might help us um, work out some some better therapies because essentially other than using ice all the treatments for laminitis are the same now as when I first qualified sort of 20 20 odd years ago uh, they they haven't really moved on that well so our understanding of of the pathogenesis and the chain of events and what sets it off and everything has improved dramatically but ultimately what we do with a horse hasn't changed an awful lot and and are there sort of um uh, I suppose like like gene therapies or things in the in the future that that people might uh, look at and I appreciate that all these things might be ridiculously expensive to do I guess so so again there are different groups um that are focusing on um sort of genes that make you more susceptible to getting equine metabolic syndrome and um SNPs and and that kind of thing so but that that's in its inf infancy we haven't got as far as saying this single gene is is what makes you more likely to get laminitis um there are other equine diseases there are various equine sort of muscle dis diseases and that kind of thing that are and then there are gene tests um but we, we ha we're quite a long way off that in laminitis i would say and, and forgive my complete ignorance uh, nicola but but it's only in horses and ponies that get laminitis or do 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 other 
um, hued animals get it? So um, cows get it as well, um, but but I think they get it slightly differently and um, theirs is predominantly associated with sort of grain and um, concentrate overload. It's not, again, uh, if it falls outside being a horse, then it falls outside my remit of, of knowing how these things uh, happen. Um, in people, the closest um, disease is called Raynaud's disease. You know, when in the cold, um, you don't perfuse your extremities, so your fingers um, and toes, etc., uh, as you should do. So you get uh, cold-related vasoconstriction to your extremities. And then it alters the nail growth on your fingers. You sort of get ridged nails and abnormal nail growth and that kind of thing. So that's the closest thing in people, but um, it, it's not really the same. So there's no sort of um, room for translational uh, research with um, with people with that disease? Or, or have people, have you looked at um, um, what, what the treatments are for, for people? Not really. So, so as far as translational is concerned, um, the closest translation is between the endocrine diseases. Um, so the pituitary pars intermediate dysfunction, the closest thing that happens in people is Parkinson's um, because they get, um, in PPID, you get accumulation of abnormal proteins um, within uh, the hypothalamus to then um, give you the, the loss of the dopaminergic um, inhibition to the pituitary and you get accumulation of similar abnormal proteins in Parkinson's. And then for the equine metabolic syndrome, the closest thing is that this is where the name came from is something called human metabolic syndrome, where they have similar metabolic changes. So again, they have the insulin dysregulation, they have high blood pressure, they have abnormal plasma lipid profiles um, in in their blood, Uh, they have altered uh, hormone production by the fat tissue. But rather than in the horses, the, the end consequence is laminitis. In people, the end consequence is having an increased risk of various cardiovascular diseases, uh, so strokes, um, coronary heart disease, uh, that atherosclerosis, um, and also type two diabetes. Wow. So, so, so there are some um, interesting links to, uh, to 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 people there. Um, is there anything do you think that we should um, comment on that we haven't commented in this very very brief roundup of, of laminitis? I think we've covered most things. I, I think I think the most difficult thing, as far as a vet's um, point of view, is trying to persuade the owner to do the things um, that the horse needs when it comes to, we've already touched on it, the diet and the exercise changes to try and prevent further episodes of the disease. Because obviously when the horse has its first episode of disease, no one knew it was going to happen and it's all a big surprise and all the rest of it. And and you deal with that and you treat it. And then the next thing that you're faced with is, well, we need to try and stop the horse having another episode. Um, Whereas owners are quite willing to, give pills to fix things so for instance giving the horse with ppid it's percent tablets they're quite happy to do that when you then ask them to do um other changes like the diet and the exercise um they find it much more difficult and also we as vets find it much more difficult to have those conversations um I'm sure you have it in the small animal world that trying to have a conversation with the owner of an animal that's overweight and persuade them how how to approach it and to tackle it so that you get weight loss and then you get sustained um main, maintaining their ideal weight is, is very difficult there was um, a bmj british medical journal article i think with looking at type 2 diabetes in in um, pets and people and and there's a link surprisingly so um uh which is which is make make some 
make some sense. Um, but yeah, it's difficult having those conversations for 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 sure. I suppose the, the one one thing I, I did um, forget to ask you could. Is there any sort of confusion with laminitis and other other clinical conditions in, in the horse? It can be. So owners can certainly confuse it. So they did a study um, of uh, looking at how often owners actually picked up that their horse had laminitis, um, and they only picked it up in about 50% of cases. So when they thought the animal had laminitis, they were correct. But equally, half the time, um, the horses got presented for a whole range of different things. So other lameness issues, but equally, sometimes they um, uh, mistake it for colic. So um, abdominal pain, uh, muscle pain, a a whole array of of different things. So um, it can be difficult to diagnose. Uh, It can be confusing because sometimes it affects one leg, two legs, three legs, four legs. Um, Sometimes it can be quite subtle. We occasionally get horses in the hospital that get presented for lameness investigations and they've just got very low-grade, subtle lamenesses and we end up MRIing their feet to make the diagnosis of, of laminitis. So not every horse has sort of the classic signs that make the diagnosis easy, both for the owner and, and for the vet. So it, it can be challenging, but it can be overtly obvious and, and everything in between. Well, maybe we'll um, leave it there, but thank you uh, so much for your time to, today, Nicola. Um, a pleasure to, to speak to you about, about this. I'm, I'm sure uh, um, we could um, just just you know, casually continue for, for a couple of days on, on this topic. So <laughs> thank you very much for your time. Um, and uh, thank you for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you don't need to worry about missing your podcast. If you leave a five-star review um, on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends vet friends or any others we're happy for anyone to listen so we'll play some show notes now obviously pages just type in obviously clinical podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast please get in touch you can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at don barfield until next time bye bye